Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Lamentations. In a world as busy as ours, you knew it was bound to happen. An Atlanta mortician has built onto his funeral home and he has installed a drive-through window. There are now five six-foot-long viewing windows in this funeral home. Each one's large enough to display an open casket. And now hurried mourners can pay their last respects without even getting out of their car. Our society now has gone from fast food to fast funerals. In a sense, we're going to copy the mortician's idea in tonight's Bible scan. Because we're going to go through the drive through window to pay our last respects to a fallen kingdom. The nation Judah is in the casket. Jeremiah is the funeral director. The Jews taken captive are the mourners and the Babylonians are the grave diggers. And the funeral dirge that we're going to sing that's going to guide our thoughts is this book called Lamentations. On July the 18th, 586 B.C., the Babylonian invaders breached the walls of the city of Jerusalem. The city had been under siege for 18 months, causing the people to suffer devastating hardships. When the Babylonians entered the city, they demolished the walls, they burned and leveled the temple, and they captured the people. And for the next 70 years, Jerusalem and its temple will lay in ruins, while the Jews will be forced to live in a foreign land, in an idolatrous land, in a pagan land called Babylon. Now understand, this whole episode is not just history to the Jews. It is an indelible part of their national psyche. Each year, for three weeks out of the year, from the 17th of Tammuz through the 9th of Av, which is in the summer on the Jewish calendar. From the day the walls of Jerusalem were breached until the day that the temple was destroyed, the Jews fast and they mourn and they repent of their sin. Their remembrance culminates with the date Tisha B'Av or the 9th of Av. It is the anniversary of the temple's destruction. And it is a day of repentance. It is a day to grieve and to mourn over the people's sin. They go to their synagogue. They sit on low-lying stools, a symbol of humility. They sing dirges in a mournful key, and they read chapters from the book of Lamentations. It was a guide not only for those who were captured by the Babylonians, but it is also a guide for Jews today, even for Christians today, a guide for repentance, a guide to look into our own lives and grieve and mourn over our sin. There are three landmarks in Jerusalem today that remind us of its past. First is the Western Wall. It's located in the heart of the old city. It's more often called, you probably recognize it, as the Wailing Wall. It is the last vestige of the temple that was built by King Herod and destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D. And for the last 1930 years, this rock-faced wall 
has been revered by the Jews. It's considered the holiest site in Judaism. Today, Jews from all over the world flock to pray in Jerusalem at the Wailing Wall. It is a place that reminds them of their grief, of their hardship. It reminds me, it reminds them and me of the ruin of their past. But the mere fact that they can come again to the wall is a sign of hope. It's a sign that God has not abandoned them, that he has restored them to the land, that he promises to make them a great nation again. Jews who come to the wall, they write their prayers down on papers. They fold them up and they stick their papers in the little crevices in that rock facade. It's interesting, the rabbis today even have a 1-800 international phone number where you can fax in your prayer to the Wailing Wall. I bring this up because the book of Lamentations has been called the Wailing Wall of the Bible. For it too is a place where we can come and express our grief and our mourning and our loss. Jews have felt those emotions down through their history. And here in the book of Lamentations... They can put a melancholy tune to the consequences of their failures. Another landmark in Jerusalem that ties in with the book of Lamentations is just north of the city's walls. Just outside the Damascus Gate is a stone quarry used by King Solomon to cut stones for the construction of the temple. And in one of the rock walls of that quarry is a large cutout known as Jeremiah's Grotto. At the time of Jeremiah, this cavern in the rock overlooked the trade route that went north from Jerusalem even all the way to Babylon. The Jews who survived the brutal Babylonian siege and were taken prisoner to Babylon left the city of Jerusalem along this wall, this road that traveled right under Jeremiah's grotto. Tradition has it. That Jeremiah the prophet sat in that grotto, that carved out piece of rock. And he watched his countrymen be led away in chains. And in the grotto, Jeremiah grieved and he wept and he lamented over what had happened to God's people. And there, Jeremiah penned the book of Lamentations. Which reminds me of a third landmark in Jerusalem. For me, it's no accident that Jeremiah's grotto is in the shadow of a hill called Calvary. Right underneath, right above Jeremiah's grotto, you can go up to the place of the skull, and there you see Golgotha, the place where Jesus was crucified. Jeremiah, the suffering prophet, wept near the place where Jesus, the suffering servant, would later die. Jeremiah suffered with his people. Jesus suffered for his people. And indeed, both Jeremiah and Jesus reveal God's broken heart over our sin. Harry Ironside writes, The God of Israel was no cold, indifferent spectator of the anguish, humiliation, and pains of his chosen people. His holiness demanded that he chasten them for their iniquities, but his heart was grieved for them still as a loving father is sorely pained in his correction of a wayward son. When my brother and I were kids and my dad had to spank us, he would always say, Son, this is going to hurt me far more than it's going to hurt you. But I never bought it. 
Sure, that's easy for you to say. I never believed him until I became a dead myself. And now I know. Nothing grieves a father's heart more than to be forced to discipline his child. Lamentations is a glimpse of God's broken heart, the sin of the people and God's need to discipline his chosen people, Israel. Lamentations consists of five poems, and four of the five are acrostics. Remember, 22 letters make up the Hebrew alphabet, and that's why chapters 1, 2, and 4 consist of 22 verses. In the Hebrew Bible, each verse starts with the succeeding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 3 consists of 66 verses. But it is also an acrostic. And here in chapter 3, every three verses start with the next letter in the Hebrew ABCs. The acrostic form was a tool that aided in memorization. And so it made it easier for the people to take this thing and put it in their minds and take it to heart and memorize it. Chapter 5 is also 22 verses, but it's not formatted as an acrostic. And do you know why? Does anyone know why? Well, no one else does either. It's one of them, their mysteries. We have no idea why. Jeremiah chapter 52 actually serves as an introduction to Lamentations. It describes the fall of Jerusalem from a historical perspective. Whereas you can think of Lamentations as covering the same event in the same time frame but from an emotional perspective. Remember, too, in the Hebrew Bible, the first word of each book became the title of that book. The first English word in Lamentations, chapter 1, verse 1, is the word how. And the Hebrew translation of this word how is almost a sigh. It could be rendered ah or alas. It's a groan of remorse, and thus the book can begin, Alas, lonely sits the city that was full of people. You could title these five chapters, The Size of Jeremiah. Get out your hankies. Tonight we're going to a funeral. Jeremiah's lamentation begins. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow is she who was great among the nations. The princess among the provinces has become a slave. What a sad, pitiful picture. The princess who danced and pranced at the royal ball is now dragging a ball and chain. She's been enslaved. She weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. You remember, she flirted with idols. But where are they now? Did they really help her? All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into captivity under affliction and hard servitude. She dwells among the nations. She finds no rest. All her persecutors overtake her. In dire straits. Dire straits is a proverbial expression for a desperate situation. It also used to be the name for a southern rock and roll group. You remember dire straits? 
But if you want to know what the expression really means, go back to its first usage. Dire straits. It's the picture of a cracked and sacked and ransacked city. Here, too, is where I wish we all read Hebrew. For unlike English poetry, Hebrew poetry isn't based on rhyming words, but on posing parallel thoughts. But the Hebrew poets do make good use of cadence or meter. Hebrew poems and psalms were all composed with a, with a sort of a chop or with a flow or with a beat to them. The cadence patterns were used by the poet to create different types of mood. Lamentations is written in what's called a clipped meter or in a limping beat. This was the cadence used for a funeral dirge. The first part of the pattern was written in four beats. Then the second part fell off a beat to just three beats. Ba, 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 ba. Ba, ba, ba. And, and it just kind of created a sort of a sullen, sort of a, a funeral dirge kind of an effect. It was a melancholy, a mournful sound, even as it was read. There were professional mourners in Israel who specialized in writing tunes with a limping beat. They were paid to sing their mournful laments at funerals, and their songs created a mood that helped the grieving pour out their grief. And so not only did the words express the people's grief, but so does the meter and the flow of the poem. It also adds to the melancholy tone. Verse 4 laments, The roads to Zion mourn because no one comes to the set feasts. All her gates are desolate. Before its fall, Jerusalem was a big and busy and bustling city. Now it's a ghost town. How would you react? If you pulled out on 285 one Friday afternoon at 5 o'clock and there wasn't another car on the road, it'd be kind of an eerie feeling, wouldn't it? You'd feel like you had just gone into the twilight zone. <laughs> That's how Jeremiah felt after the Jews were taken to Babylon. Roads and gates once packed with people and traffic were now empty and lonely. And it was sin that had vacated the city. Make no mistake about it. In verse 5, Jeremiah, Jeremiah makes it clear. The Lord has afflicted her because of the multitude of her transgressions. For 40 years, Jeremiah had warned the nation that her sin would have consequences. Tragically, the Jews never took Jeremiah's alarms to heart, especially the kings of Judah. They had acted so proudly, so invincible. But where are they now? Verse 6 compares them to a fearful deer that runs at the first sight of trouble. Verse 9 sums up Jeremiah's sin. Her uncleanness is in her skirts. And the reference is an analogy that has sexual overtones. For Judah was guilty of spiritual adultery. Rather than remain faithful to the Lord who loved her and who vowed to be her husband, she chased after idols. The people gave their love to false gods, and as a consequence, God brought judgment on them. And check out the next phrase. She did not consider her destiny, therefore her collapse was awesome. Here were people with a severe short-sightedness. She did not consider her destiny, therefore her collapse was awesome. It reminds me 
of the short-sighted skydiver who was making his first solo jump. Nothing had gone right all day. He had woke up late that morning. He had overslept and missed breakfast. His car ran out of gas before he got to the airstrip, and he got nauseated as the plane made its ascent into the air. And then when he jumped, he pulled his ripcord. Nothing opened. The parachute didn't release. And then he pulled the emergency cord, and the chute still didn't open. And that's when he thought, man, nothing's gone right for me all day. I'll bet they're even late picking us up. He was just a little short-sighted. And as a result, his collapse was awesome. So it was for Judah. Likewise, we're told, she did not consider her destiny. You see, she refused to admit that her sin had consequences. Guys, choose a road and you choose a destination. Choose a road and you choose a destination. If you don't want to go to Macon, then don't get on I-75 headed south. Head south on I-75 and you can tell yourself the whole time that you're not going to Macon. You can laugh at the mere suggestion that you're going to Macon. You can even believe that you're the exception to the rule and you sure won't end up in Macon, but give yourself a couple of hours and you're going to arrive in Macon like it or not. You see, get on the road and its destination becomes unavoidable. Likewise, it's not difficult to figure out where you're going to end up in life. Get on a road headed away from God. And you'll end up in misery and regret. You can tell yourself that it won't happen. You can laugh at the mere suggestion. You can even believe that you're an exception to the rule. But keep following that road long enough in that direction and the destination is inevitable. The road away from God will ultimately lead to hell. Guys, we think life is some great mystery. Where will the road of life take us? Come on, it's not hard to figure out. Just look a little further down the road your own. Where does it end? Every road has a destiny. Is it headed toward God or is it headed away from God? Judah ignored the road she was on and the inevitable destiny, and therefore great was her collapse. In verse 9 we're told, Judah did not consider her destiny Therefore, her collapse was awesome. And note the consequences. She had no comforter. No wonder she had no comforter. She had turned from trusting in the one true God, the only reliable comforter, to depending on powerless, impotent, false gods. It reminds me of the evil king who captured the beautiful princess, put her in an ugly dress. I mean a real gag-a-maggot ugly dress. And every day the princess looked outside the window, waiting on her knight in shining armor to come to her rescue. But the evil king would just laugh at her and say, No knight is going to rescue a damsel in this dress. (laughs) Well, Jesus is our knight in shining armor. But he comes to the rescue 
for only those people who have trusted in his cross and who have depended upon his righteousness and have clothed themselves with his goodness and his holiness. You see, if you choose to go your own way and trust in your own efforts and carve out for yourself your own righteousness, then the night won't rescue you in that dress. In his eyes, it's an ugly dress. You remember Isaiah 64 tells us all our righteousnesses as our filthy rags. From the grotto, Jeremiah watches people he knows and loves walk before him shackled and chained. In verse 14, he says, The yoke of my transgressions was bound. They were woven together by his hands and thrust upon my neck. Notice it wasn't the Babylonians who conquered Judah. It was the God they defied and rejected. He fashioned the handcuffs. He made the ball and chain that they were dragging back to Babylon. God orchestrated the judgment. Notice too, Jeremiah says, the yoke of my transgressions. Understand, the transgression of these people had nothing to do with Jeremiah. To the contrary. Jeremiah had remained faithful to God for 40 years. They weren't being judged for Jeremiah's transgression. So why does he say, my transgressions? You see, here is the heart of a true intercessor. He loves people so much that he's willing to identify with their suffering and their plight. I believe this is why people mistook Jesus for Jeremiah. Remember at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And they answered, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others, Jeremiah. For like Jeremiah, Jesus also identified with the sin of the people. He suffered in their place. He took their sin upon his own shoulders. People saw in him the same compassion that they remembered in Jeremiah. You know, I'm good at pointing out other people's sin. Jesus is good at picking up other people's sin. I'm good at scorning. He's good at saving. Somehow Jeremiah understood that and wanted to be like Jesus. And the question tonight is, how much do you and I really want to be like Jesus? Is there forgiveness in our hearts? Is there mercy in our approach? Do we care enough about people to take their plight on our own shoulders and, and enter into their experience and, and really identify with where they're at and what they need? That's what it means to be like Jesus. How much did Jeremiah love people? Look at verse 16. He says, For these things I weep, my eye, my eye overflows with water. His tears are dripping again. Remember, Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. He was a man with tough skin, but with a soft heart. His tears always stayed close to the surface of his skin. Don't misunderstand. He was a strong man. He was a brave man. He was a bold man. But he wasn't afraid to feel and care and let people know it. You might say that Jeremiah was a true Renaissance man. He was a model for modern men. He was that combination of both steel and velvet, toughness and tenderness. 
Now, throughout the Old Testament, the temple was called God's footstool. God is omnipresent, of course. He inhabits all places at all times. But there was one place where he promised to establish a tangible presence among his people, and that was the temple in Jerusalem. And that's why it was called God's footstool. It's where he propped up his feet. God was everywhere, but the temple was where he made himself at home. It's where God became intimate with man. But the temple, you see, created a false sense of security among the, among the people at the time of Jeremiah. You remember, they thought that because the temple was in Jerusalem, the city would be immune from God's judgment. How would God ever judge the place that held the temple? In Jeremiah 7, the prophet rebuked the Jews for trusting in the temple rather than in the God of the temple. And now look what he says in chapter 2, verse 1 of Lamentations. He says, God did not remember his footstool in the day of his anger. Jeremiah was right. The temple was never even considered. They had trusted in the temple, but God could care less. He went ahead and he judged the temple. The temple was destroyed with the rest of the city. Often we make the mistake of assuming that proximity equals protection. That proximity to God equals protection from God. In other words, if we're around the people of God, if we're around the house of God, if we're around the things of God, then we really will be okay, you know. We don't really have to follow God if we just stay around God's stuff. But don't be deceived. Jeremiah will tell you the folks hanging out in the temple experienced the same judgment as those partying in the bars and the nightclubs. Just because you're around the things of God doesn't mean you're following God. Doesn't mean that your heart belongs to him. He looks deeper than our actions. He looks to our attitude. He looks to our hearts. Verse 3 says the Lord withdrew his hand of protection from them. Verse 5 says the Lord was like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. And twice here, Jeremiah says the Lord is like an enemy. You remember as a kid how often you concluded that your parents were your enemy? Every time they interfered with your plans, every time they administered some kind of discipline in your life, man, you thought they hated you. What have they got against me? Why are they my enemy? They're supposed to be my parents. And you thought they were against you. But now you see that they were acting in love. That they were thinking of your best interest. That they had your welfare at heart. In reality, they were your best friend. But at the time, they seemed like your enemy. And we can make the same mistake with God's discipline. He's not against us. Rather, he loves us. He's not our enemy. He's our very best friend. And we need to trust him. Verse 6 says of God, he has done violence to his tabernacle. The temple was destroyed. And as a consequence, no longer are the Sabbaths kept. No longer were the sacrifices offered. Apparently, the rituals and the feasts were never as important to God as the attitude of his people. He wanted repentance. He wanted sincerity, not just sacrifice. As Samuel said to King Saul, to obey 
is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Verses 8 and 9 of chapter 2 tell us that God purposed to destroy the walls and gates of Jerusalem. Verses 9 and 10 say the law is no longer read in the city. The prophets no longer receive vision and revelation from God. The leaders no longer lead. It's been a devastating judgment. Again, in verse 11, Jeremiah bursts out in tears and he begins to sob. My eyes fail with tears. My heart is troubled. My bile is poured on the ground. His anguish has literally made him throw up because of the destruction of the people, daughter of my people, because the children and the infants faint in the streets of the city. The condition in Jerusalem is so appalling, so depressing that people will hiss and mock Verse 15 says that the passerby will recall the psalm, Psalm 48, and ask in mocking fashion, Is this the city that is called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? How far this great city has fallen, literally from beauty to ashes. The end of chapter 2 provides, portrays, Just how horrible the conditions got in the final days of the siege of Jerusalem. We're told how children starve to death. You can read it. Rather than die, moms ate their own babies to survive. The streets were full of corpses, young and old alike. And at the end of chapter 2, Jeremiah says, Those whom I have borne and brought up, my enemies have destroyed. Man, how horrible. People close to Jeremiah, personal friends and family, young men that he had discipled and trained are now all dead. He had warned them that unless they repent, this would come upon them. But they failed to listen to his warnings. And that's what leads Jeremiah to say in chapter 3, verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. He's seen the people he loves die before his very eyes. And he's saying, this is a dark day. This is a terrible day. Jeremiah was the noble captain who went down with the ship. He had seen dark days personally and nationally. Jeremiah had heard with his ears God's warnings, and now he sees with his eyes the fulfillment of those warnings. And for the first 20 verses here of chapter 3, Jeremiah describes the grim feelings that flooded his soul at the time. You see, even for a spiritual giant, for a faithful servant like Jeremiah, there were moments when God felt distant. At times, he even felt that God was against him. Sometimes, as Christians, we assume that we should always be upbeat, always joyful, always abounding with confidence, never discouraged. But that's not the picture of faith that Jeremiah provides us here. Jeremiah is more genuine. Jeremiah's faith is not some rosy, sugar-coated, everything-positive kind of faith. Jeremiah is up front with his frustrations and his feelings. There's nothing fake or phony about Jeremiah's faith. He deals honestly with his feelings and his emotions. Jeremiah struggles. You see it in this chapter. 
but he's not afraid to share his struggles with us. And that's why I've nicknamed these first 20 verses of chapter 3, Jeremiah's Vent. Because that's what he does. He vents his frustrations and his discouragement and his despair. Just look at how Jeremiah feels. He's bummed. He's discouraged. Verse 3 says, Surely he has turned his hand against me time and time again throughout the day. He accuses God of roughing him up, of making life hard. Verse 4 says, He has aged my flesh and my skin and broken my bones. In other words, serving the Lord has caused me to get older. It's worn me out. He's beaten me up. I don't know that it really applies, but it reminds me of a quote that was attributed to Ronald Reagan one time. You know, Ronald Reagan turned 90 this past week. You, You knew that. Well, once when he was questioned about how the impact of his age would affect his performance as president, Reagan countered with a line from Thomas Jefferson, how that age had no bearing whatsoever on a president's performance. And then Reagan made the statement, and ever since Thomas Jefferson told me that, it set my mind at ease. (laughs) But Jeremiah is complaining here that serving God has aged him, that it's worn him out. He says in verse 7, he has hedged me in so that I cannot get out. Verse 8, even when I cry and shout, he shuts out my prayer. He's not even listening to my prayers, he says. In verse 9, Jeremiah says, he has blocked my ways with hewn stone. In other words, God has put up barriers. He's impeding my progress. He's making my life more difficult. Have you ever felt these kinds of frustrations? Have you ever felt this way? Look at the accusation he makes in verse 10. He says, he has been to me a bear lying in wait. Like a lion in ambush, he has turned aside my ways and torn me in pieces. In verses 12 and 13, it's even worse. He says, he has bent his bow and set me up as a target for the arrow. He has caused the arrows of his quiver to pierce my loins. That's a horrible thought. Getting shot in the loins with an arrow. In other words, he's accusing God of hitting him below the belt. He even says in verse 16, he has also broken my teeth with gravel and covered me with ashes. He he says here that following God is like gargling with gravel. He's frustrated. Now, Jeremiah has grown bitter, obviously. And his emotions have swept him way out of line. You can tell he's in for an attitude adjustment. You see, none of the statements that Jeremiah has made here in these first 20 verses are true. And I'm sure that if we press Jeremiah on the issue, he would agree with us. But you see, he's not composing here a statement of faith. He is venting his feelings. He is airing it out. He feels let down and betrayed and opposed by God. And he's expressing it. And pouring it out before the Lord. Years ago, a lady in our church lost her husband to a sudden illness. And someone gave her a book. And she later came and gave it to me. And she said, Sandy, this book has meant so much to me. I want you to have it. I want you to read it. And in the book, the author made an interesting point about pain. 
He writes, pain speaks a strange language. It plays funny tricks on us. It makes us think things and say things and even believe things that are not true. When pain bores its way through human flesh and into the human spirit and then just sits there and hurts and hurts and hurts, the mind becomes clouded and the brain begins to think strange thoughts like God is dead. He's gone fishing or he doesn't care. Jeremiah is sitting in that grotto. He is weeping. He is hurting. And this pain he feels is having this distorted effect upon his perspective. Verses 21 through 23 are what pulled Jeremiah out of his depression. He says, This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Here's what Jeremiah does. He reaches up out of his confusion and he grabs hold of an important truth. It's always truth that that rescues us from our feelings. It's always truth that rescues us from the distortion caused by pain. It's always truth. Trust in your feelings and your faith will wobble. It will fail. But if you hang on to God's truth, your faith will remain and you'll stay on solid ground. When you get confused, when pain begins to distort your perspective, when you begin to think things about God that you know are not true, when you begin to feel things that you know are not true, reach up out of your confusion and grab hold of the facts of God's Word, the truths of God's Word. It's the truth that will save you. It's the truth that will set you free from the distortion of pain. Here's a point that illustrates my point. Three men were walking on a wall, feeling, faith, and fact. When feeling got an awful fall, then faith was taken back. So close was faith to feeling that he stumbled and fell too. But fact remained and pulled faith back, and faith brought feeling too. When we let feelings drive The ship, we're bound to fall. But when we get the facts out in front and we we live our lives based on truth, then our feelings follow in line. It's okay to vent your feelings as long as you don't trust in those feelings. Feelings are fickle. The facts are fixed. We need to base our faith on the facts, not on our emotions or our feelings. And notice the fact that rescues Jeremiah, God's mercies. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Jeremiah had been looking at the cup half empty rather than half full. He had seen his share of dark days, but he's still alive to tell the story Apparently, God's mercies had not abandoned him. God is faithful. He loves us with a love we don't deserve. He loves us with a love we can't defeat. 
You can't quench God's love. His mercy just keeps on coming. It's never consumed. Despite our circumstances, God's mercies are new and available each and every morning. The Hebrew word translated in verse 23, compassions, means to love by touching. I like that. The world may beat me up physically, but God comes to me spiritually with healing touches. His compassions fail not. I love the thought that the Lord's mercies are new to us every single morning. Every day when I wake up, I can look forward to some new and fresh display of God's love in my life. Every morning, that gives me a reason to get out of bed. I like what Joseph Newton said. Only God is permanently interesting. Other things we may fathom, but he outtops them all. You might say God is like a Clairol girl. He doesn't get older, just better. The more you walk with God, the more you desire to know him, the more intrigued you are with him, the more delighted you are at him. Every day he is able to, disp- to surprise you with some new demonstration of his mercy and of his love. Life is hard. But every day God gives us comes with a fresh allotment of God's mercies. And if God refuses to give up on the future, neither should we. As he says, as we said this morning, there are times when we'll get fed up with certain aspects of life. But never, never, never give up. God's mercies are new every morning. God wants us to trust Him despite our confusion, despite our pain, despite our emotions and our feelings. And when we do, He promises to overflow our hearts with His mercy. This is why Jeremiah says in these next few verses, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should hope and wait patiently and quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Feelings will throw you out of sync. We can lose our bearings. God can seem far away. It is faith that restores intimacy between us and God. Verse 27 is Jeremiah's advice to young men. He says, it is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. In other words, youth is the time to learn your lessons. Not try to demonstrate how much you know. He says, let him sit alone and keep silent because God has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Young men, did you hear that? Here's God's word to you. You just need to stick your mouth in the dust for a little while. A young man needs to shut up and listen. Rather than raise the roof... You're better off eating dirt. In other words, humble yourself and learn your lessons. Now's the time to bear the yoke. Now's the time to learn the lessons. Now's not the time to show off how much you think you know. Did I say that clear enough? No. (laughs) He says, for there may yet be hope. There may yet be hope for you guys sitting right back over there. Let him give his cheek 
to the one who strikes him and be full of reproach. In other words, if you receive God's discipline, if you learn God's lessons, if you do humble yourself, if you do cultivate a repentant spirit, if you do become teachable, there may yet be hope for you. Jeremiah promises in verse 31, For the Lord will not cast off forever, though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. God's discipline is but for a moment, but his blessing is for all eternity. Jeremiah affirms God's sovereignty in verse 38. He says, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being proceed? In other words, God issues both woe and well-being. As he goes on and he says, Why should a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? (laughs) As one man confessed, I have no problem with the idea of God sending people to an eternal hell. What I don't understand is why God doesn't send everyone. We've all sinned. We all deserve God's punishment. (laughs) He says, don't complain with the punishment God dishes out. We all deserve it. We should just be thankful. Then in addition to his discipline, he has shown us mercy and forgiveness. And we owe our forgiveness to the mercies and grace we have found in Jesus Christ. Verse 40 tells us, let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. You see, repentance is the proper response to all that has happened to Judah. Let's turn back to the Lord. Let's examine our ways. In verses 48 and 49, Jeremiah says that his tears have become a never-ending stream. Jeremiah is truly crying tears of repentance. In the last chapter of Jeremiah, of Lamentations, Jeremiah recounts again his own troubles and persecution. In verse 53, he says, They silenced my life in the pit and threw stones at me. The last half here of chapter 4. I'm sorry, of chapter 3. We're in chapter 3. In the last part here of chapter 3, he describes his own persecution and his own troubles. He says, they silenced my life in the pit and they threw stones at me. You remember, they did literally throw Jeremiah in a pit. They threw him down in the mud hole. They left him for dead. His body sunk into the slime. And if it had not been for the friend that the Lord raised up, Ebed-Melech, who interceded for Jeremiah, who got the 30 men who went and pulled him out of the pit, Jeremiah would have died. The Lord was merciful. The Lord would not allow them to silence the voice of Jeremiah. Chapter 4 begins, How the gold has become dim. How changed the fine gold. The stones of the sanctuary are scattered at the head of every street. Now, 1 Chronicles 22 verse 14 tells us that Solomon used... 100,000 talents of gold in the construction of the temple. That's a lot of gold. A talent was about 100 pounds, 60 to 100 pounds. And so a conservative estimate would equate 100,000 talents to be about 6 million ounces of gold. You do the math. 
And that means the gold in the temple was worth, at today's rates, about $35 billion. Remember, the entire temple was overlaid with gold. And that's why the stones were scattered, Jeremiah said, at the head of every street. For when the temple was burned, the gold melted and it rolled down into the crevices between the rocks and the, and the Babylonians dismantled all the stones in order to get the molten gold out from between the rocks. Verse 1 tells us that what gold was left has now become dim. No longer was it a bright polished metal. Now it was tarnished and ashened. Verse 2 says that, Jer- that Judah itself has gone from being a gold vase to becoming a clay pot. In other words, the nation has lost its glory. Just as the gold was tarnished, the nation's glory has also been tarnished. You might say Judah was God's golden boy for a time. But his sin has now forfeited that glory. And guys, we need to realize that's what sin does in our lives. It strips us of our glory. It robs us of our dignity. It cheapens our self-worth. Sin strips us of our glory and our dignity. In the remainder of chapter 4, Jeremiah describes in more detail the awful events that took place during the siege of the city. And as you read these things, it's really hard to stomach. Starvation was rampant. Verse 9 says, Those slain by the sword are better off than those who die of hunger. Verse 10 says that otherwise compassionate women grew so famished and desperate for food that they boiled and ate their own babies. Before the siege, the false prophets had exuded such confidence. No one believed the enemy would ever set foot in the gates of the city of Jerusalem. Only Jeremiah predicted otherwise, and tragically, Jeremiah's words were the ones that came true. Prior to the fall of the city, King Zedekiah tried to strike an alliance with Egypt. And there were those who believed that the Egyptians would come to their rescue and save Judah. But verse 17 says, Still our eyes failed us, watching vainly for our help. In our watching, we watched for a nation that could not save us. The cavalry never came. Egypt never showed up. Egypt failed them. Chapter 5 begins with a description of Judah's present condition. The people of Judah and Jerusalem have lost everything. Their inheritance, their homes, have been taken now by foreigners. Parents, neighbors, husbands are all dead. They've been wiped out. They're no longer free but slaves. Verse 5 says, we labor and have no rest. Verses 7 and 8 are a cry from Babylon. Our fathers sinned and are no more. But we bear their iniquities. Servants rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. Understand, the Jews will now spend about 70 years in exile off in Babylon. In other words, a whole generation of children will be born into slavery. The offspring of the people who rebelled against God will suffer for their parents' sin. Parents should leave a legacy. Instead, these parents left a leprosy, a plague. I think this should sober every parent. You think that if you rebel against God, if you sin against God, it'll harm you. But it can also create devastating disadvantages for your children. 
If you love your kids, then for their sake, you should think before you act. You should put God first. You should walk in His will and in His ways. If you don't, they may have to live with the consequences of your actions. The middle of the chapter describes how cruel the Babylonians were to the Jews once the city was captured. We're told they raped the women, they tortured the men. Verse 14 says, The elders have ceased gathering at the gate and the young men from their music. This is horrible. They gathered up all of the stereos and the boom boxes. They got all of the stereos out of the young men's cars and they were taken away. No more pop music, no more hip hop, no more rock and roll. The only music left in the city was Jeremiah's Lamentations. Verse 15 and 16 sum it up. The joy of our heart has ceased. Our dance has turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. The book closes oddly. Closes with a question that God has already answered. Verses 21 and 22 read, Turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are very angry with us. You see, in the midst of the siege, God had already made a new covenant with Jeremiah and with the Jews. He was not through with them. He would forgive their sin. He would one day write his law on their hearts. And each individual would know the Lord intimately and personally. In fact, God promised that as long as the sun rises in the morning and the moon shines at night, He will have mercy on Israel. He will see to it that they remain His people. And you remember Jesus is the one who ratified that new covenant. Just before He was crucified, He took the cup and He said, This is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood which is shed for you. And on the cross the next day, he paid the price to seal that covenant forever for God's people Israel and for those of us who trust in our Lord Jesus. If you trust in Jesus, you too become a part of the new covenant. For through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. Why don't we say that together? Turn back to verses 23, 20, 22 and 23. Let's read it together. Chapter 3. This would be a great way to close tonight. You ready? We'll begin with through the Lord's mercies. Everybody ready? Here we go. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us. That you can be trusted, that you can be counted on. Father, we love you. We ask that you continue to work in our hearts. We look forward, Lord, to a new day. Because we know that it will come equipped. 
and overflowing with your mercies. Help us, Lord, to look for you, to work in our hearts, to strengthen us, to help us. Help us, Lord, to be directed toward you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, God bless you guys. Have a good week.